nice to see everybody fellowshipping together and worshiping the Lord. And as our sermon title says, all together doing what? Praise God. I love that. I love that sound. Let's open up to our text tonight. Acts chapter 2. I will read from verse 41 to 47. So those who received his word, that's Peter, were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your awesome work of salvation. We thank you, God, that you're behind the scenes drawing people to your Son. We thank you, Father God, for the gift of generous hearts, glad and generous hearts, as we praise you together, God. I thank you that for moments throughout the week we get caught up and raptured into heaven, forgetting that we are part of this world, God, and we're part of something much, much greater. I thank you, God, for all those times throughout our life and throughout our week, God, as we concentrate on you we're reminded that our citizenship is in heaven and not in this world, Father God. And Lord, let us know exactly what was taking place 2,000 years ago after the Spirit of God was poured out, after that first evangelistic sermon, Father God, and the fruit of it, Lord God. Open up our minds to understand the Scriptures and apply them to our life. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Excuse me as I struggle with some sinus issues. It's that time of the year. All together praising God. 1955. Do you know what happened in 1955? Don't even guess. All right? I was not born. I was born in 1975. I won't say another word. But in 1955, something happened that changed the world. Walt Disney opened up Disneyland. You might not know that. And I know some people here were probably there in 1955. But that theme park in California was opened up and the world has never been the same again. Listen to his quote at the dedication. It's a telling of his philosophy and his outlook on life, says Walt Disney. To all who come to this happy place, welcome. Disneyland is your land. Here age relives fond memories of the past. And here youth may savor the challenge and a promise of the future. Disneyland is dedicated to the ideals, the dreams, and the hard facts that have created America. With the hope that it will be a source of joy and inspiration to all the world. And it has. There's no question about it. I went to Disney World in Florida when I was about 33, 34 years old. I want to know. I felt like a kid. I really enjoyed it. I had to run down Mickey Mouse. He thought I was going to tackle him to get a picture with him. 
I came running down. I finally saw him peeking his head outside the door. I chased him down. He ran. I caught up to him. He was never the same after that. But I got my picture. But I want you to know, I did enjoy it. I, I enjoy theme parks. I go on the drive and so on and so forth. But, but this is a small example of, of man's desire for fun, for pleasure, uh, a decompression from life's pressure. We have them. There's no question about it. Theme parks rock. And because mankind loves to be entertained. It's a quest for the simplistic, childlike approach to life. As Walt Disney says here, you know, uh, the youth can, may savor the challenges of the future. An age relives fond memories of the past. This nostalgia approach to life. You know, you just forget about everything. This simplistic, childlike approach of faith where innocence and playful curiosity express itself in a safe environment with others of like mind. It, it seems that time seems to stop for a moment. And you're not part of what's going on around you, just sort of raptured up into this entertainment, whimsical, fairy tale existence where there is no wrong, there's no bad, there's no evil. You're just sort of floating around. Time seems to stop for man, woman, and child, every tribe and tongue, color, race, color barriers are broken down, economic. Uh, Social economics are broke down, and you're just you're just enjoying. It's a fun time. It's unfortunately that in this world, that's mankind's highest aspiration is entertainment and a good time. Men are striving to gain so they can have a good time and decompress with a good time, and it's all about fun and it's all about entertainment. And they're missing it. They really are. Because what really man needs is the soul's highest aspiration is to be in awe of God. That's what we were created for. To be in awe of God and, and praising God all together. Not standing on a line for two and a half hours to get on a ride that costs $35. But we go to extremes to enjoy ourselves. To get the thrill. To feel like we're alive. But then Jesus says, I am the life. And he come to give life and give it how? More? And we'll read, we read today what real abundant life is about. They were together in fellowship, all together, rejoicing in glad and generous hearts in awe of God. This is life, and this is life more abundantly. In this world where fun and entertainment seem to be man's highest aspirations and enjoyment at any cost. A sort of let's forget about reality and create our own reality. Comes the ultimate reality. That's God's reality and our greatest good and our soul's highest aspirations is to be in awe of God. To worship God and to praise God. To understand God. To see God with the eyes of faith and apply that to our life. And have a fulfilled and satisfied life. A prolonged, filled and satisfied life. Not based on uh, circumstances, but based on who God is. That's what this church was experiencing. That we just read in these six verses. They were experiencing life at its best. Life the way it was meant to be. This is enjoyment at its greatest level. Fellowship with God and fellowship with other like-minded 
people. And guess what? At the center of it all is not us. At the center of it all is not our personal feelings. At the center of it all is not our personal enjoyment. At the center of it all is God. God. It's not man-centered. It's God-centered. While everybody was sitting at the apostles' feet and listening to the doctrine of Christ and seeing the fruit of faithful preaching and they were coming with glad and generous hearts and God was adding to their number day by day as those who were being saved and they sold everything and they gave it to the common good of all. They were in awe of what God can do. Man was not the center of it. Anything Christ was. Christ was. And they were in awe. They were mesmerized by God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Like Disney, God had a design and a plan. He had a design and a plan and and, and the means to get there. Walt Disney's inspiration for that theme park came from buying a plot of land in Santa Ana, California. He had a neighbor. Another billionaire. And the neighbor had nothing to do with his money, so he bought this big plot of land and he, he built a train for the family to just go back and forth on. Walt Disney expanded on that and he made his own, he bought his own train. But his train went around the yard and the family would go on it on Sundays and they, he says, but you know something, I'm going to build a train and I'm going to put a theme park in it, not just for my family, but for everybody. He was a true visionary. The man was, he was incredible. And that's what he did. That's the inspiration, just like that. And then everything was a means to the... Took him about seven years. What we're reading tonight, of this awesome praise and awe of God, where nobody had anything to themselves, but they sold it for the common good, and with glad and generous hearts, they worshiped God together. That's heaven. That's the design. That's what God is working toward. That's his vision. That's his will. That's his plan. And everything is moving towards that in that direction. And we're raptured up into it. And we're part of it. And what happened 2,000 years ago after Peter preached his first sermon, after the Holy Spirit was poured out, after men cried out, what must we do to be saved? And 3,000 were converted. What happened is that they got together and they loved God and one. You know, the greatest things of life are found in the intangibles of life. I read a good, great book by a psychologist, famous book about 20 years ago. And he's saying the older men get, men and women, the older we get, the more we grow more fond to personal relationships and family and friends and roots. And we start losing the drive for, and passions to, for success and materialism. And we start to become reflective uh, and so on and so forth, you know. And God always known that. God has always known. It's the intangibles, the virtues of love and joy and peace and serenity and contentment, one with another and one with God, the vertical relationship and the horizontal relationship. That has always been God's aim. Without it, we really die on the inside. 
God had a plan like Walt Disney. And for the first time in human and redemptive history, we just read it. It's actually taken place. Genuine and sincere hearts. Worshiping God and spirit and truth. People represented from 19 different nations from around the known world, around the Mediterranean world, had come and heard the gospel preached in their own native language. They were overwhelmed. They responded, what must we do to be saved? And here they are. They're worshiping God, black, white, man, woman, young young, all together, many different languages, all represented there, worshiping God. You have to see it. I try to paint it so that you can see what was taking place, see the beauty of it. This is where time had stopped for these believers and they were raptured into heaven with other believers. They were in awe of God where all human pride seems to have vanished. And humanity is operating under its original design, all to the glory of God and to man's deepest joy. What we read tonight in that text is man's deepest joy. It's man's deep, it's my deepest joy. I've experienced a lot in life. There's nothing like just loving God with other believers. There is nothing. I'm going to tell you that right now. If you find something better, tell me. If you go far and wide and say, Brian, I found something better than worshiping God. And I found something better than worshiping God with other like-minded believers. And I found something better than worshiping God with other like-minded believers who have no spirit of competition, no pretense, no other ambitions, but to love you and fulfill the law of Christ, which was carrying other man's burdens. If you find something better than that, let me know. Because I'll tell you right now, the charlatans are out there, they'll try to sell you something. It's not there. Everything you and I need for a fulfilled, sustained, satisfied life is already given to us in Christ. It's in Christ. I've chosen to interpret this text from the end. That's the fruit of what I'm speaking about. This joy, this, this, this awe of God that we see here is the fruit of other things. But I chose to really, if we want to understand the means to the end, I just chose to just pick on the end this, this wonderful fruit, this wonderful congregation, worshiping God, 3,000 people. Uh, uh, plus, they're getting added to their numbers day by day, and it's just magnificent. And I, I want to I see that. I, I want to aspire to that. We see the fruit that God has always desired from creation of mankind. God always desired what we just read in our text, always. But as soon as as sin came and interrupted everything, even even Adam and Eve couldn't get along with each other. The vertical, the horizontal, was broken. As soon as Cain got rebuked and he had a chance, he killed his brother. He killed his brother for a little uh, uh, corrective criticism. Cain, if, if you do what's right, God will accept you and your fruit basket. but we see them coming together with glad, sincere, and generous hearts. All were praising God and all were, they forgot for a moment any kind of inattentions they had in their heart. It's gone. It was vanquished. For what Christ has done for us. But Christ has reinstated this deep joy and this deep happiness and unity. 
first with God and, and to each other. If you were here a couple weeks ago when I preached on Peter's first sermon, that's, that's the evangelist's dream. The evangelist's dream is to preach and preach hard and lay it at the conscience of men's minds and call them to what? To repentance. And it's his dream and his ambition to hear men say, what must I do, evangelist, to be saved? But for pastors like me and John and others, this is the text that changes our life. Not that I don't want to see 3,000 people saved, but what are you going to do with them after they're saved? It's when the pastor's heart comes in. And when I read this text and I meditate on this and I see what God can do if he was sought, if I see what God can do if we preach faithfully and we live faithfully, this is what God does. I'm alive in this text. I'm lost in this text. This, is, this drives me. It motivates me. Every waking day of my life is to see this kind of unity in the spirit and the bond of peace. Glad, sincere, and generous hearts partaken for the common good. God, let it be. Be gracious to us, I ask, Father. Holy Spirit, move upon this neighborhood and move upon our hearts. And let Christ be glorified so men and women from many tribes, tongues, and nations can be in awe of who Christ is. In his name. Let's go to our text. Starting in verse 41. We see that over 3,000 converts are saved on the first day of Peter's preaching. We spoke about this a couple of weeks ago. This is the birth of the modern church. The church has always been here since Abraham. Hasn't gone anywhere. But this is the birth of the modern church. This is the birth of the church filled with the Spirit of God and the doctrine of grace in Christ. Behind these verses, we don't see it, it's not clearly stated, but there's this great display of administration and organization power that Luke really doesn't get into. Luke is concerned with, concerned with the intangibles of what is happening and why it is happening and not how it's being handled. This is not the next day after Peter's preaching that 3,000 people were together in one place. No, it had to be contained. It had to be organized. Administrations had to be brought up and, 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 and Luke is reflecting on a time after his writing 30 years before and he's writing on something that happened and he's, he's organizing his thoughts but most likely this is weeks and months and maybe even a year or two after the Holy Spirit was poured out that God has taken these 3,000 people now and he's organized them and they're in a place now and all of them are devoted to the apostles teaching. We're not to think about this 24 hours later as they were all there. They were all saved, and things started to happen very quickly, but this probably within the first two, three, four weeks, maybe first two months, that Luke is concerned with, the writer of Acts right now. And we have 3,000 people, and, and all of a sudden we have this great organization, this great administration, and people are coming together, and they're devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. They're going to the temple. They're going to homes. It's, the church is alive. The church is thriving. People are talking about Christ. People are loving Christ. Everything's moving forward just like God planned. The real Disney World, the church, in all its glory, 
is happening right before their eyes. 3,000 souls, 19 different nations, all devoted in one heart, in one mind, mesmerized by the apostles' doctrine. Mesmerized. Devoted means to be attached, to, to hold fast. It's like you get a picture of someone tackling someone and not letting go. I'm not letting go. I'm not letting go. Like Jacob. Remember Jacob when he wrestled with God? I will not let you go until you bless me. They're devoted, self motivated, unsolicited. They sat eagerly at the apostles' feet, hanging on to every word about Christ that the apostles were teaching them. Be sure of this. When the apostles taught, it was expository preaching at its best. These weren't sort of arbitrary sermons that they just put together and they threw at the people. No, 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 no. Was expository preaching. This is explaining who Christ is from the Old Testament scriptures, as well as from historical vantage point of being with him for three and a half years, seeing the crucifixion, experiencing him in the resurrection, where for 40 days he continued to teach about the kingdom of God and the Holy Spirit. They were now deciphering everything they needed to hear. The first sermon moved men to repent. But now time and teaching was needed to make them understand the plan of redemption. Please understand that. You can get saved in a sermon. But you won't be just, you won't change it to Christ in one sermon. We need to be taught. And we need to be taught. And we need to be taught. And we need to be taught. We need to sit on the apostles' teaching. We need to have expository explanation. We need to go from Genesis to Revelation. We need to go by verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, Old Testament, New Testament. We need to see Christ in all his glory. We need to sit at the apostles' feet today as much as they did when they were first converted. We need to sit there and have a full understanding of the mind of Christ. We need to hear the doctrine of Christ. We need to hear this heavenly doctrine that drips down like dew out of and honey out of heaven and it drips down and it fills our hearts where we too are mesmerized and in awe of who Jesus Christ that he's not just a name he has arrested our hearts teaching nothing's changed Nothing has changed. Nothing should change. There's no reason to change. The church doesn't need a facelift. The church doesn't need to be supplemented by games and activities and creative ideas. It needs to be faithful to the preaching of Christ the way Peter was on that day and the way the apostles continue to teach Christ and explain Christ and interpret Christ in the Old Testament and from the New. You and I, I'm going to tell you right now, you don't need a clever sermon. You need Christ. I don't need a clever sermon. 
I need Christ. It's I read this and I get excited and my faith is alive because I know this is who God is. He hasn't changed yesterday, today, tomorrow. Me and John don't have to gather and say, how are we going to make the church grow? No, we say, how are we going to remain faithful? God adds to our numbers. It's God's job. Our our job is to remain faithful to the cause and preach and to rightly Preach Christ faithfully. It's our job. He goes on to say the fellowship. That small word, the, before fellowship shows us that this was not an arbitrary gathering. But it was a planned Christian fellowship. They were known as the fellowship. They were fellowshipping together. Christian fellowship as opposed to Jewish worship. It has changed. It's not fellowship the way you used to know it. It is fellowship together with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As you learn and sit under the teaching and doctrine of Christ, this is the fellowship. This is the common ground. All true friendships, every subculture, there has to be a commonality that draws men together. It could be the bowling league. It could be golf. It could be softball. It could be anything. There's a commonality. There's, a, there's, a, there's something that brings people together. And friendships are built on that. This friendship, this fellowship, is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ and his righteousness. And that's what we have together. And that's why we come together. That's why it's the fellowship. It's more than just a church gathering. It's more than just people coming together. This is a heart-to-heart kind of stuff. This is sincerity of heart, where we partake of our food upstairs with sincere and glad hearts, encouraging one another. Not in the spirit of competition or pretense. We let it all down. Be yourself. I'll speak more about this in a couple of weeks. I'm only going to speak on a couple of, actually one verse. I might be here a month. But understand something, the fellowship over here, this kind of fellowship, this kind of sincerity, this kind of genuineness, 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 where there is no sort of, you know, uh, what you're wearing, who you are, what accolades you have, everything's stripped away in this fellowship. Nothing exists, exists for Christ. Nothing. And all this is done by uneducated and unlearned Galileans. There were nobodies. Nobodies. And the scriptures say that even the scribes and the priests were getting saved. And they were submitting to these unlearned, uneducated fishermen, tax collectors, and zealots. Preach Christ. Something in this world has changed. Praise God. This is a personal definition to describe what has taken place. It's a fellowship now. You envision 3,000 people, this, this new entity just ministering to one another and loving one another. And no one had anything in need. With everything was in common. Think about the song, Jerusalem never sang the way they sang then. God was never represented more 
closely and clearly as upon on that day when they broke bread with sincere hearts. From a cold formalism that they found in Judaism, the Judaism that we see in the Gospels that was rebuked by Christ, to a genuine concern for each other in the name of Christ. This is the law of Christ that Paul talks about in Galatians chapter 5. Carry, Galatians chapter 6. Carry each other's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. This word connotes friendship of the deepest kind. The deepest kind. All from the one common interest. Christ. You can't find a more common interest. You can't find something that's going to change people from every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Jesus says when you invite someone to a party, don't invite those who invite you back. Don't do that. The sinners do that. Even sinners do that. He says, don't lend to those who can give back. Sinners can do that. I'll tell you who to invite. Go out into the highways and byways and invite the lame and the blind and the leper. Invite them who can't give you anything back. Invite them. You see, the world has unity. The world has its, its, its counterfeit. People feel fit in. You know, if you've got blue eyes, blonde hair, you look like me, you sound like me, you were born like me, you're in the same socioeconomic world. Yeah, we can make that work. But not in Christianity. In Christianity, everybody comes. Only God can bring everybody with sincere hearts. Not just those who look like each other. We're going to find out in the next couple of chapters, people were coming from everywhere. And they were thrown at the apostles' feet. You see what the government tries to do in regulating, God does by transforming the human heart. We don't have to try to make it. I don't have to determine you. You have to think this way and act this way. God changes us because of our common interest and need in Christ. You don't have to tell me to give. I love to give. I love to give to the saved and the unsaved. You have to tell me. God taught me that. Period. This is the fellowship. And they're breaking the bread. This is the sacrament to be sure. This is what Jesus laid down in the upper room shortly before he was betrayed by Judas at the Passover meal. Church and eating and taking a sacrament was an integral part of early Christianity. Integral part. But I want you to know something about this breaking of bread. I don't want you to think about it. We have such, how can I say, we are so detached from what the sacrament of taking the body and the blood of Christ was 2,000 years ago. We are so far removed. We're so inundated by religion and formality and we're so cold to what it really, really means. I'm going to be speaking on this in two weeks. It's so cold to what it really, really means. Understand something about what was taking place over here. The glad, sincere, 
generous hearts. People were just, they, they were magnanimous. They, they, they gave of themselves. They, 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 they lavished their stuff on other people, their love on everybody else. Because the breaking of the bread, what do you think? Because they broke bread, it changed their life. These were Jews, devoted men, who knew nothing of going to the temple without bringing a sacrifice. Their whole life was based on bringing the sacrifice. They would go into the marketplace and buy the best sacrifice. It was, it cost economically. It was time consuming. They would go to bring the pure sacrifice to God. The sacrifice is gone now. It's over. They had to come to this, uh, this epiphany. That Christ was the sacrifice. Think about how overwhelmed they were. That 1500 years of Jewish religion. With its thousands upon ten thousands. Maybe millions of slaughtered animals. All pointed to one slaughtered savior. You and I we know that. We sing about the broken body. We partake in the broken body. Our life is built on the death of Jesus Christ. We know that from our childhood stories in church. But they didn't know that. They had to sit there under the apostles teaching. And how they interpret Isaiah 53. To them. Week in and week out. That he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. And that our well-being fell upon him that we deserved. And that it pleased the Father to crush him. When they partook of the body, it was like, oh, give me the bread. The bread was only a token of what the teaching was representing. As they explained the broken body of Christ, they explained the crucifixion from a biblical, theological standpoint. That he's not a criminal that deserved to die. We are the criminals that deserve to die. Now, the breaking of bread here was no just formalism. There was no token of appreciation. This had deep, deep reflection on all their hearts, of which I'm going to speak about in two weeks. And he says, end the prayers. End the prayers. This is a praying community. Without an understanding of the historical context of this verse, much will be misunderstood about prayer. I want you to know that right now. Much will be misunderstood. These first converts, these first Jewish converts saw themselves as the remnant of God on earth. Make no mistake about it. They knew they were separated onto God, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, to proclaim the excellencies of him who drew them out of darkness, to proclaim the light. They knew they were different. They knew God had called them to something different. They knew they were the remnant. They knew they were God's fulfillment to the Old Testament promises that came through the prophets. They knew it. 
And their prayer life reflected it. Their prayer life reflected thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Their prayer life was thy kingdom come prayer life. And it wasn't some dry, formal, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. This was, Lord God, I love you with all my heart. Your Abba Father, I thank you for dying for my sins. Oh God, the joy and the praise that I'm feeling, I'm experiencing. God, I want all the Jews to know. As Paul says, I'd be anathema, separated for God from the sake of my nation, my people. Separate me for God for other people. That's the kind of prayer life they had. They were evangelistic in their prayers. They were evangelistic in their life. They wanted to see the kingdom of God come. They wanted to see his will done on earth as it is in heaven. They desired to see the reconciliation of not just men with God, but but men with men. And they prayed fervently, emotionally, and with deep conviction for God to work. No, no, no. Don't think that this is some kind of prayer life. Let's get together and share our felt needs. Listen, let me explain something here. In other words, their personal life and its concerns, which mean everything to God, I'll tell you that right now. Your personal life and your concerns mean just as much to God or more than to yourself. But for a moment in our life, they put aside all their personal concerns for God's concern. The prayers. The prayers. The prayers for the kingdom of Christ. The prayers that the advancement of Messiah's kingdom would go forth. That's the prayers they're talking about. God is concerned for our needs. As the rest of the book of Acts will show, God is concerned for our needs as we are concerned for his. But for sure, this prayer was both personal and corporate. It was formal, spontaneous, Sometimes long, sometimes short. It was practiced by all. This was a praying church. This is the church that prayed together to see the kingdom of God come. And we'll close with this. And awe came upon every soul. The awe of God. It's hard to really describe what this is. I'm going to borrow a saying from J.I. Packer. And I'll paraphrase what he said because I couldn't find it in my box. But he says this. Or is when God gets so big that we become so small that we don't exist anymore. And all that exists is God. That's all. That's all. God becomes so big that we don't exist and now I can love everybody with sincere and generous hearts. Because I don't live anymore. It's Christ who liveth in us. It's no more who we live. Pride is gone. Vanity is gone. Ego is gone. Ambition is gone. The kingdom of God has come. They're in awe of God. Each person rightly evaluating who God is and who Christ is. At this moment in church history, men were really lost in the bigness of God and the nothingness of themselves. 
Think of how sweet life would be if we thought very little of ourselves. I really want you to think about that. And it's not based on natural revelation. It's not looking at a, a magnificent sunset. That's an awe of a regular kind. No. This awe and this nothingness was birthed on that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died for their transgression by the will of God. That's what they were in awe of. They became small. This, was, this awe is not some kind of mystical, subjective, spiritual experience that can't be evaluated and people are raptured up and they're like fanatics. God is all over me, they say. There's no teaching of Christ. There's no interpretation of the apostles. There's no genuine fellowship. There's no prayer for the kingdom of God to come. Raptured up in some kind of personal subjective, it's all God. Anybody can say that. No. This awe is brought upon everybody. Not just individuals. This is not to someone in the church with the glory of God on them. No, the whole church was in awe of God because they evaluated it by the objective work of Christ as the apostles taught them. This is what they were in awe of when they saw the fruit of it everywhere around them was sincere and generous and loving and forgiving hearts. And you can evaluate the work of God and you can say, oh my God, What has happened? Look at people loving one another. Look at people caring for one another. Look at people not holding back anything, but with a magnanimous heart, they're blessing everybody. They're carrying the law of Christ. That's awe-inspiring. Father, we thank you. We can go on and on, Father God. I can't even get to my application. But Lord... You apply this to our hearts. It's your application at the end of the day, Father God, not my great thoughts and opinions, Lord. And I pray, God, that you take this sermon and you just start to prick our conscience on true awe and praising God all together in one place, Lord God, and to see that we're something much, we're part of something much bigger than ourselves. God, I pray for all of us, everyone in this room, husbands and wives, children, fathers and moms, friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, that God, you get so big in this church and so big in our hearts that we cease to exist. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.